Hello, wrestling fans, and welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle, an old-school wrestling podcast about good conversations and great stories. I am your host, Brian R. Solomon, and this is episode 32. My guest this week is Ross Hart of the Hart Wrestling Family. We will get to that in a moment. want to get to some important updates first, chief among them being... A very exciting project in the Arcadian Vanguard universe that we had. There's been some rumblings about now for quite some time. I've mentioned it on here. Uh, Brian Last has mentioned it uh, over on Jim Cornette's shows, and and it's been talked about on social media. And now it is finally a reality, as many of you may have already seen. The Wrestling News has launched. This is a daily. That's right, daily uh, news podcast or newscast usually in the 10 minute range or so which is uh basically what it says it is unbiased news from the world of wrestling no opinion no kind of people trying to put themselves over just straightforward direct concise something you can listen to in the morning before you go to work uh sort of has a little bit of a of an npr kind of vibe to it if you take a listen um, so it's a great team, of course, with Brian and Mike Sempervivi, who is a technical wizard, a technological mastermind, and he is the anchor and he is the voice that you will hear on there. Uh, I am the news director and I am kind of putting together the scripts and gathering all the news uh, uh, as to what goes into the newscast. We've also got Lou Kippelman and Jason Nacarado from the Arcadian team on board. So I strongly recommend, if you haven't checked it out yet, that you give it a listen. It's available where you find all the Arcadian podcasts and all your other great podcasts. It is The Wrestling News. It's also available at thewrestlingnews.com. And so, yeah, check it out. We're all real proud of it, and it's now officially up and running. Um, also want to mention, as I uh, briefly did last week, uh, I was in Albany when I recorded last week's introduction at the International Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame weekend. And uh, that weekend has uh, been completed, and I had a great time over there getting to meet a lot of people, uh, Dory Funk Jr., Bushwhacker Luke, Booker T., uh, so many people involved with the International Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame over there, Ted DiBiase, just a great bunch of people, Joe Malenko, Dan Severn. It was it was a star-studded weekend, had a great time, and Seth Turner and company are doing a fine job of organizing this new Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame in New York State. They have a physical space now in the MVP Arena in Albany. You may remember it as the Pepsi Arena or the Knickerbocker Arena, best remembered as the site of Ric Flair's 1992 Royal Rumble win. And so therefore it is with a tear in my eye that I strongly recommend you check out the Hall of Fame online that it's the International Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame or IPWH 
F. Uh, There were a lot of great inductees this year, headlined by um, Dory Funk Jr. and also Stone Cold Steve Austin, who sent in a video uh, accepting his award. I had the honor and pleasure of inducting uh, Ricky Choshu, giving an induction speech for the great Ricky Choshu of, of Japan to welcome him into the International Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame. This is their second weekend running. I was there last year, and I look forward to doing more with them in the future. In fact, I'm working on and planning on getting Seth Turner, the director of the Hall of Fame, as a future guest on Shut Up and Wrestle, so keep an eye out for that. Also, uh, keep an eye out for the Cauliflower Alley Club reunion because I will be there. That's right. A little bit later this month, the I believe it's the last week of September, in Las Vegas, Nevada, myself and Mrs. Solomon will be on hand for the Cauliflower Alley Club reunion. I'll be selling uh, copies and signing copies of my book, Blood and Fire, the Sheik biography, which I also was doing at the Hall of Fame weekend. I'll be doing that again in the uh, in the autograph and, and merchandise room at CAC this year. So I look forward to seeing you there. If you are a member of CEC or if you're planning to attend this year, I think it's going to be a little bit of a better turnout than last year now that we're sort of uh, uh, tentatively emerging from COVID. So that should be a lot of fun. Look forward to seeing a bunch of you there, Cauliflower Alley. Uh, And now, without further ado, let's get to a little bit more history in the form of Ross Hart. This was a fascinating conversation. Of course, um, we did spend a lot of time talking about Brett. How could you not? Uh, When you're talking to a member of the Hart family, we got a little bit of the inside scoop on the the Hart uh, family dynamics and and Stu's background in the business and all that kind of stuff. Stu and Helen meeting and just the history of Calgary Stampede Wrestling. Ross is a fountain of wrestling knowledge and information. And so I think you will enjoy this conversation very much. And I'm going to take you to it right now. Okay, so this week on Shut Up and Wrestle, I would like to welcome a very special guest. And I I first want to thank Tom Burke for making this uh, conversation possible. Uh, This week, we have a member of the Hart family wrestling dynasty. He is, in fact, the second youngest son of Stu and Helen Hart. Uh, uh, he was a wrestler, trainer, promoter, historian, and a fixture of Stampede Wrestling. I'm talking about Ross Hart. Welcome to the show, Ross Hart. Hi, Brian. It's it's, it's great to be here, and uh, I'm looking forward to the panel today. Uh, you're you're uh, you're too generous in your compliments of me, but uh, it's uh, it's nice that I, I get recognition for. Uh, a number of roles that I had with the promotion, but I'm, I'm really looking forward to being on your show today. Thank you so much. No, listen, I mean, please, uh, uh, the, the, you deserve the accolades. I mean, you you are a member of, as far as what most wrestling fans are concerned, you're a member of wrestling royalty. I mean, uh, the Hart family name carries a lot of weight, as I'm sure you know better than most. Yeah, it's uh, it's 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 great to see and hear, and uh, it's nice to be remembered. You know. Uh, this many years, you know, after we we're we we're prominent in, in the wrestling industry, but it's uh, it's nice that people come up to me and uh, um, enjoy hearing my interviews or stories or uh, perspectives on the industry and uh, in the past and uh, where we're going now uh, from my viewpoint. So uh, it's uh, it's been great for me as well. 
And so you, so Owen obviously was the youngest son and, and you're the second youngest. How much of an age difference were there from you and Owen compared to the other, the other Hart boys? Uh, I was five years older than Owen. I was the second uh, youngest son and Owen was the youngest. And I guess uh, out of the 12 kids, I was the 10th child. And then Diana was uh, three years younger than me. Um, she went on to marry uh, Davy Boy Smith uh, later. And then uh, Owen was the youngest. And then uh, there would have been a three-year age difference between Brett and me. Uh, Brett just turned um, 65 last month in July. So um, there would have been an eight-year difference, uh, eight-year age difference between Brett and Owen. And this, of course, makes me feel extremely old now because <laughs> I have to say, I mean, I'm I'm 47 years old and I grew up as a huge fan of your brother, Brett, as I think a lot of people my age did. And, uh, you know, when I when I was in my teens and 20s and <laughs> it's uh, time marches on, it's pretty wild to see your 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 heroes and idols uh get older like that and i'm sure the young fans of today will experience that one day with people like john cena and roman reigns <laughs> yeah absolutely you know it's uh it's uh kind of a passing of the torch i guess you know so yeah uh but uh you know uh the hearts were pretty big i think in the 70s 80s you know and then brett had a a really good run you know it was almost a uh second life he had in wrestling you know almost uh a renaissance or a rebirth, you know, um, when uh, he became world champion and then uh, uh, had, had a great run uh, with with uh, WWE and uh, uh, a shorter one, I guess, with WCW, you know, mm. after that. But uh, and then, you know, Owen had a, a great career as well, which was uh, sadly cut too short. But right. uh, um, but yeah, I mean, we'll we'll uh, we'll look at guys like John Cena and Roman Reigns, uh, um, you know, and Seth Rollins. Uh, years later, you know, uh, from now and, and for the impact they've had on the industry. You know, it's it's funny you mentioned uh, Brett having kind of like that second wind of his career, uh, because I think, I don't even think there were, you know, a lot of young fans at the time who grew to love him when he had his big singles run on a national stage, in, in an international stage in WWE, uh, that he had already been, as most, as a lot of us know, he'd already been in wrestling for maybe 15 years by that point. Yeah, he had, you know, um, he worked a lot of different territories, but, you know, primarily in Stampede, but he also, uh, had worked in Germany. He did a number of tours from New Japan, uh, and then had a, a stint with, uh, the NWA at that time, uh, in the Carolinas, I think he was working there for their pocket promotion uh, and shows they had in Toronto. Uh, I think he was working as Buddy Hart. He, he was interesting. He couldn't even use the name Bret Hart because somebody else uh, had used the name uh, Bret Hart. Um, I'm not sure who that was. Somebody else was using the name uh, Bret Hart just as a, as a ring name. So when Bret uh, was working um, in Toronto there, he said, well, you can't use that name because somebody else had used it. Somebody named Jack, I can't remember his last name, but had already used the name Bret Hart. So Bret had to wrestle as a buddy Hart and uh, did a, a program, I think, with Leo Burke, who was, uh, who was pretty tight with um, Johnny Weaver and some of the guys that were working uh, in the Carolinas and uh, running the Toronto shows. But Bret had uh, a pretty extensive career um, in North America, you know, and had worked in uh, UK and Germany and Japan before he got to 
WWF uh, when we started there in, I guess, 84. You know, that's just when Vince had started his uh, expansion and uh, eliminating all the uh, small promotions and territories. But, uh, you know, and then Brett had a, a pretty good run with Jim the Anvil Knight, Heart is the Heart Foundation, uh, had won the tag title twice there and had worked heel and then worked babyface, and then uh, they used him in singles after that, and it seemed to be like he was always uh, stable in the tag team industry. But then, uh, you know, when uh, the, the WWE went through a transition and uh, they, they weren't going to be utilizing guys like Hulk Hogan and Ultimate Warrior, and they're going uh, through a different direction, um, Brett was uh, in the right place at the right time. You know, and, and they put the title on him. Uh, they had him uh, beat Ric Flair for the title, and that that was uh, a significant change in the whole whole industry and uh, and and for Brett's career as well. You know, and uh, he he did very well with it. But you know, it just showed his uh, longevity and his appeal, and he he wasn't burnt out with fans. You know, I think he he was consistently uh, uh, a great performer, and he could work with just about anybody. You know, uh, big guys smaller guys, you know, like, like Ted DiBiase or Shawn Michaels, he could have great matches with them. Um, you know, he was just very uh, versatile and, uh, you know, um, he, he wasn't burnt out, you know, he, right. he still was a, a fresh, uh, a fresh face for a lot of fans, you know, and, and yet I think he, he said uh, where he was really over and popular was uh, in Germany and uh, the UK, you know, he just seemed to have a, um, a different following there. Maybe it's because he was Canadian. Um, you know, maybe, um, you know, he wasn't the all-American hero type because a lot of uh, the established stars were American or from the States, but being from Canada and being from Calgary, you know, the Wild West City, uh, home of the Stampede, um, it just gave Brett something uh, unique and and uh, he stood out differently from other wrestlers, but uh, it seemed um, his following there really... Uh, helped relaunch him in in North America, you know, and uh, then he, he he got a pretty good push, you know, working in the States and Canada after that, you know, this could have been in the early to mid nineties. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, it's true that you mentioned how it was not, it was definitely a change of direction for the company. I know for a lot of fans like me that have been watching for a while, it, it wasn't what we would have expected. And, you know, uh, there were a lot of people that loved to see wrestlers like Brett in the WWF, but you generally didn't see them at the top. And so it was just, it was really uh, great to see when it, when he started really getting that big singles push. And, and I have to say that, you know, I was, I always wondered, and I'm sure you've been asked this before, but being in a wrestling family where wrestling's really in your blood and, you know, for generations and it's, and it's probably, it's all that, that, you know, the, the family is focused on it for so long what was the reaction within the family, especially I'm thinking of of Stu and Helen, your parents, to see their son succeed on such an, an unprecedented level? Uh, what what was that like? Um, it was pretty exciting. You know, I think it was humbling as well. Um, you know, we we thought Brett really had earned it, had really deserved it because he had worked hard. Uh, I'd say he paid, he paid his dues, you know, nothing was ever handed to him. You know, he was, you know, the son of a legend, uh, Stu Hart. Um, and, uh, I think he came from, from great pedigree, but, but, um, you know, it was an uphill climb for him, 
for sure. You know, when we first got into WWF, they they uh, they didn't use him that well, and uh, you know, they, he had a lot of uh, competition. You know, they they were bringing in the best guys from all these different territories. You know, they brought in the best stars from AWA, from uh, NWA, um, and uh, yeah, you know, it was it was uh, it was a very competitive situation you know to to get a spot in the card and really stand out and uh it uh, it wasn't easy for brett you know when they first brought him in he was kind of lost in the shuffle there and uh um you know and he had to work very hard you know inside and outside the ring you know he had to have consistently good matches be able to work with a lot of different guys and uh i think uh you can attribute a lot of that to his early uh matches with the british bulldogs you know he he was tag teaming with with uh, Jim Neidhart, so for Brett that meant they had to change him heel because um, he wasn't getting over that well as a babyface at first, and uh, they were just kind of using him to get over other heels, I guess. And uh, when they they uh, they brought the Bulldogs in, you know, and that was uh, a big coup for Vince McMahon, you know, to bring in the Bulldogs, which were, who were the top team in the industry, and and Vince uh, finally was able to sign them because they had a really uh, big contract with with all japan and uh looked like they might be going maybe to um nwa or something instead and uh vince uh with the help of my dad was able to uh, sign the bulldogs to a contract and you know i think offered them really good money and uh the opportunity to still work their their uh, three tours uh of japan a year but they needed somebody to uh, work with them who, who knew their style and could keep up with them in the ring and uh um, and Brett had worked with them a lot in, in the Stampede promotion and uh, UK and Japan. So uh, they they switched Brett into a heel when he teamed with Nightheart and they had phenomenal matches. You know, I, I often credit Brett and uh, the Bulldogs for uh, uh, relaunching the tag team division in the WWF, you know, and, uh, and, and, and made it... Uh, you know, one of the best uh, divisions on their whole show. And you look at some of the tag teams they had, it was just phenomenal. You know, they had the Killer Bees, they had uh, the Sheik and Volkoff, they had Rhett and Jim, they had the Bulldogs. Um, Demolition. Demolition, yeah. All, you know, incredible. And uh, Brett and Jim could work with with any of them. But I think that's uh, where Brett really got noticed. You know, he was having phenomenal matches uh, uh, with the Bulldogs and other tag teams, you know, and then... Uh, uh, they eventually changed or turned them into baby faces, and then they got a second run. You know, so they won the tag team title uh, twice. And uh, Brett, Brett was still, while he was still working heel, it was amazing how much um, fan mail he was getting. You know, you'd hear from guys in the office how much fan mail he was getting. You know, for obviously from a lot of females. You know, because um, he he was he was young and uh, he was exciting to watch, even though he was uh, he was a heel when Jimmy. Um, Hart was managing them, but uh, he, he, they said his merchandise was really selling well, and uh, he was getting so much fan mail, so they, they decided to uh, turn him babyface, and that's what they did. I think it was when they brought uh, Bad News Allen or Bad News Brown in uh, to work in WWF, and they needed somebody uh, to work with him and help him get established, and Brett had worked with him, of course, in Stampede, so uh, Brett was, uh, I think, largely seen as a guy that could make anybody look good, you know, have great matches with him and, uh, um, you know, and um, utilize him to, to help establish him and, and get them over. And um, he was, he was so over with the fans, you know, I think when, 
they they decided they needed to go in a different direction. I think this would have been after that steroid trial with Vince and uh, Hulk Hogan and J- George Zahorian, and uh, the drug testing was enforced, and um, uh, they were going in a different direction. And uh, it was the end of uh, Hulkamania, so to speak. They 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 looked in a different direction, and uh, Brett was the guy they uh, decided on. You know, it was interesting. They didn't they didn't bring in a new star, or a new face. They they went with somebody who who I guess had some longevity and um, had had been loyal to them and, and worked for them for a number of years. And, uh, and that's what they went with, you know, and, and I think it introduced a whole new generation of wrestling. You know, you saw more uh, smaller, lighter guys, but they were having better quality matches and longer matches. You know, Brett would wrestle guys like Shawn Michaels and even Owen, you know, when they turned Owen uh, heel later against Brett, which was a, a great angle. But sometimes they'd have these... Uh, Iron Man matches that would go 60 minutes, you know, very few guys could go 60 minutes, you know, and uh, keep the pace that, that Brett did with, with Shawn Michaels and Owen. Um, and he did, you know, and it yeah. just, it was a testament to his uh, workability, his, his stamina, his psychology, you know, and they were consistently great matches to watch, you know, so, um, so I think Brett proved on a number of levels, uh, you know, how, how good a worker he was, how reliable, how reliable, how loyal he was and, uh, and, uh, you know, just how uh, popular he was because uh, you know, his merchandise always sold like crazy and, uh, um, you know, and consistently his matches were, were judged to be the best and the best of the year, you know, of all, of all the different, uh, promotions at that time you know, with, with, uh, new Japan and all Japan and, uh, still, still thriving and, uh, WCW and, uh, you know, a few other promotions, ECW and, you know, WWF, but uh, you know, Brett's matches were consistently uh, uh, ranked uh, the, the, the top or close to the top every year. Yeah, you know, and, and, and you didn't, at that time before that, you didn't really see those kind of matches, like you were saying, at the uh, on the main event in the WWF. It just wasn't the style that they were doing, you know. And, and I saw, for example, I saw Brett and Owen do a 60-minute Ironman match, they call it a marathon match, on a house show, in because I'm from the New York area, in the Nassau Coliseum, and it was like nothing that I'd ever seen in the WWF, and this was before he did the one with Sean, and it was just a- incredible to see and, and as a main event. And, and, and I also saw, you know, you want to talk about the Hearts and the Bulldogs, I mean, to have two teams like that at the same time in one company. I mean, I don't know if there's ever been two better teams that the company's ever had. And I saw the last match they had at Madison Square Garden, uh, those two teams. And even by that point, Dynamite was in very rough shape. He could yeah. barely stand. And I remember Davy Boy had to carry him to the ring, but but they still had a good match. Yeah, it was just amazing. You know, I, I... Uh, I think a lot of that was just from the, the style and uh, pace of wrestling and stampede. You know, uh, guys that went through that territory uh, became good workers, you know, because they, they worked with uh, other good workers. You know, we, we, it was just a testament to the uh, level of talent that we had there and the different styles. You know, we had guys from Japan. We had guys from uh, uh, the U.K., you know, some of the best from the States came up, you know, and uh, even a few Lucha Libre type wrestlers, but uh, uh, a lot of guys really learned how to work in Stampede and, uh, you know, and were, were proven and, and 
went on to be very successful wherever they went. If they, if they did tours of Japan, if they uh, worked in uh, Germany or Austria, if they worked in the UK, uh, if they worked in Mexico, if they worked even in uh, remote places at that time, you know, like, like South Africa and uh, Australia and New Zealand. But um, it was uh, uh, testimony to uh, the quality of, of working with, with the Stampede promotion and uh, uh, so many guys... Uh, we're very successful and can work anywhere, you know, uh, North America or abroad, you know, that included, uh, the Bulldogs, it included Brett, it included, uh, uh, Neidhart, included, uh, David Schultz, you know, uh, Bad News Out, so many of these guys, right? And, uh, um, I, I think, um, it, it was, was just, uh, an indication, you know, of, uh, how, how good the style was with Stampede and, and, uh, Guys right. never had any any problem uh, getting over or getting pushed in another promotions they went to. And I remember when they when they really started uh, Brett's solo push when he when he beat uh, Mister Perfect for the Intercontinental Title uh, that at SummerSlam they had that at the Garden uh, here in New York. And I, I remember you know that match just being almost like a turning point in the kind of matches that you could expect to see. In the WWF, and I also remember that they that your parents were there uh, in the crowd, and they interviewed them and everything. And I know sometimes they would bring the whole Hart family out for some of these angles or matches they'd be doing in a lot in a lot of cases. I know you, sometimes you'd be involved as well. Were you there for for that Madison Square Garden show? I was there for that match, although I watched it live, you know, uh, in pay per view, and I remember Larry Hennig was. Uh seconding Kurt and my dad was seconding uh, Brett, you know, so it was really interesting because you had the uh, the older generation fathers, you know, who had such an influence on their uh, sons, right, um, in their corners, and it just it gave the match so much credibility, and it was a it was a great match, you know, like uh, Kurt Hennig was uh, one of the best all-around performers in the industry, and uh, um, and it, it was really a turning point in Brett's career, you know, um, and uh, uh, you know that it it was just a phenomenal match, and I, I don't think anything uh, was better on that whole show. No, definitely. And, and uh, yeah, you know, and then it just uh, was a sign of uh, better things to come for Brett. You know, so even though he eventually dropped the uh, Intercontinental Title to Davy Boy at Wembley Stadium, and that was another classic match. You know, it was uh, it was it was a classic, and uh, I think it was. Um, over 70,000 fans at the live show, you know, it was just phenomenal. And uh, Brett, um, you know, passed the torch there, you know, and, and it really helped uh, Davey get established, you know. And then there was an interesting storyline because they were both brother in laws, and you know, Diana was Brett's uh, sister and she was married to Davey, and she was kind of caught in the middle there. But and you know, it was such a, a great back and forth match, you know, it was a classic. And yeah, and Brett came out of it a, a winner more than anything because uh, after he dropped the belt to uh, Davey Boy, you know, which he he was glad to do. You know, he really wanted to see Davey get his uh, his push and opportunity and singles. Uh, it was maybe a month later they uh, they decided to go in a different direction with the world title and uh, um, have uh, Ric Flair drop the title to Brett. You know, and I think that was a big chance he took on Brett because um, they they could have tried to do it with uh, 
with with Ultimate Warrior or so many other guys, and and they and I think they looked at Brett as uh, someone who was stable, who was reliable, uh, that could uh, carry the promotion, you know. And uh, they took a chance on Brett, you know, and uh, it worked out very well because they had him win the title in Saskatoon, you know, which was uh, a big city of the Stampede promotion, you know. And Brett had a huge following there, and it was where my dad was born. My dad was born and raised in Saskatoon and they brought Stu in for the match and uh and Brett uh went over you know I think it was just a electrified response when uh Clara submitted to the sharpshooter and uh you know and uh um a whole new era you know for the WWE and uh, and for Brett as well you know because because now he had uh, uh conquered all the divisions you know we've worked uh in the tag team division, he'd uh, been intercontinental champion, and now uh, you know he'd won the world title. And especially after losing the intercontinental title, and then uh, a month or two later winning the world title, you know. So uh, yeah, um, yeah, it was it was a a huge uh, milestone in his career. I want to, you know, I want to ask you about that match with Flair because you know I remember at the time uh, it seemed to almost come out of nowhere because. Uh, they chose to do it. I don't know if you remember this, but they chose to do it at a TV taping where it was not even shown on television. It was kind of a a, a videotape exclusive kind of thing. You know, they recorded it. It was not part of a pay-per-view or part of a weekly show. Right. Do you know why they did it that way? It seems so odd. I think they had already uh, booked the... Um the town you know as as part of their house tour and then uh then for whatever reason um uh i think flair and wwf were were part in company they were going their separate ways uh, i'm not sure if they uh uh weren't happy with with flair's uh runner's champion um you know because he won the title from randy savage and it seemed like they were going to go a long time with him you right. know, as, as the champion, but they, they went in a different direction. You know, maybe, maybe Flair had gotten a better offer to go back to WCW. You know, I, I wasn't sure uh, what the dynamics were there, but, uh, but it, uh, uh, they decided, uh, you know, Flair was going to no longer be champion. And, and I'm, I'm not sure what the, uh, the rationale or uh, behind the scenes decision was there. Uh, but, but I knew, uh, you know they they wanted to go in a different direction and, uh, and they had to look at who who their options were you know and i and, I, and they decided to go with brett you know and, right. and i think you know, brett would uh would be able to work well with flair you know and in fact i think he had some iron man matches with flair too where they had to go like 60 minutes and uh they had, they had some very long matches though you know and uh flair was a seasoned performer and uh you know uh probably one of the most credible established guys in the whole industry so uh uh you know so when brett beat him you know that uh it showed you know he was uh on that main event level you know right but they uh i think it was just uh there's something they decided after they had uh booked the show and they it wasn't even a, a, a televised show it wasn't like a, a raw or smackdown show they were just uh uh, doing a, a tour of uh, Alberta and Saskatchewan, and then then they decided uh, they they wanted to have him drop the title to to Brett, and um, they they ended up televising the match, you know. But um, you know it it worked very well for Brett because it was the next best thing maybe to him because winning the title in, uh, in Calgary, but they had him do it in uh, Saskatoon, you know. They had a, a large crowd and you know and obviously a large home crowd, you know, to support Brett because. Uh, 
you know, he'd worked in that city for so many years for Stampede and was, it was established with the WWF as well. So, uh, um, you know, and then it was, uh, I, I think for the fans, it was uh, electrified because I don't think they expected a title change, you know, to right. probably be a, a disqualification or something, you know, or some technicality where, where uh, Brett would uh, do everything but win the title. But when he, he actually went over and right in the middle with the sharpshooter, uh, I think the fans were amazed and uh, it, it elicited the response that uh, WWF wanted, you know, and, uh, um, you know, so, so someone who was maybe, you know, an underdog and who had just uh, fallen somewhat, you know, when he lost the Intercontinental title, although I think if you, if you talk to Brett, that that loss actually made him stronger because when he, when he lost the title to Davey, uh, it... Uh, you know, it was uh, a very close competitive match and baby face match pretty much the whole way. But uh, uh, and yet he was he was very graceful, you know, and when he he put Davey over and they they uh, they uh, embraced each other and hugged each other after the match, you know, as a as in-laws might. And yet it, it looked like a real intense competitive struggle. And uh, I think it it it, uh, it got Davey over, but it got Brett over just as much because uh, it, it, it showed he he could uh, lose the title and, and yet had the respect of so many fans, you know, and uh, and he was still over, you know, even, even in a loss like that. And uh, I think WWF uh, looked at those uh, factors and thought, well, he's he's the next best one to um, put the world title on. So even losing the Intercontinental title uh, helped get him over. And, uh, and then they uh, had him beat Flair for the title. And uh, it, uh, it it showed anybody can uh, rebound. I, I think that's that's an important theme in a lot of sports. You know, and you've seen uh, athletes or teams, you know, lose one Super Bowl or something, or lose one uh, playoff uh, match, and then they come back even stronger uh, the next time around. You know, and uh, um, Brett Brett was um, very much over. You know, he even though he had been there a long time, it it just showed his uh, longevity and. Uh, the fan base that he had, you know, uh, and, and he was more than ready when they put the, the world title on him. And, uh, you know, I think he, he pretty admirably uh, followed a pretty tough act. You know, it wasn't uh, easy to follow uh, Hulk Hogan or Ultimate Warrior or Macho Man Randy Savage, you know, for all the uh, hype and exposure that they got. Uh, uh, with, with Brett, uh, it was uh, a different style. It was, uh, it was a shift in the industry, and uh, the fans really embraced it. Yeah, it definitely was. And, you know, um, th th that world title change with Flair, I, I remember just, you know, uh, here in New York, we would sometimes have the results of wrestling would be printed in the newspaper. And I remember seeing it and not understanding because it hadn't been on TV and, and not really. And I, I sort of thought maybe they made a mistake. And then the next thing I know on the next weekend of television, uh, Vince is there and he just introduces Brett as the new champion. And, and that's how that's how I knew that it had happened. But, you know, um, I want to ask you one last thing about about Brett. And then I definitely want to talk about Stampede and get into some of that stuff. But, you know, as a longtime fan uh, talking about that Madison Square Garden match with Kurt Hennig, something that always bugged me. And I don't know if if you ever had picked up on this because I've watched that match so many times. But they had to, and this may sound silly, but it, it meant something to me. They had Stu and Helen there in the crowd and. And after the match is over, Brett goes over and they're hugging and he's congratulating his son. And it's really this great moment. And they have Lord Alfred Hayes there doing an interview, a post-match interview with the family. And, you know, he 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 uh, asks Stu how he feels. 
and Stu starts to talk, and then Lord Alfred just cuts him off in, in mid-sentence, and 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 you can see the, the poor guy is trying to, to finish his thoughts, and he's very proud of his son, and the next thing you know, they cut to the next segment. I don't know if you ever picked up on that, but I always it, it always seemed very rude and dismissive to me. Yeah, I don't know why they would have Lord Alfred interviewing my dad and then just cut him off uh, mainstream, you know. I guess it was a live pay-per-view, so maybe they couldn't go on too long with it. I don't know, but uh, uh, but it just seemed kind of abrupt. Yes. Know? And uh, my dad, uh, uh, yeah, he could, could be long-winded at times, but I think they, they should have let him speak longer than that, you know, because he was right at, I mean, not only was he in the crowd, but he was in Brett's corner. You right. Know? And, and, Larry Hennig was uh, was in uh, Kurt's corner, you know, so it added a different dimension to the match that the fathers were both there. But uh, uh, so, you know, I don't know if Lord Alfred got his instructions from uh, Vince, you know, whoever was uh, commentating to cut Stu off short, you know, or, uh, you know, they, they were just running, I think they were just running short on TV time, you know, and, uh, um, you know, and it was, it was, was kind of disrespectful it was improper but um i had seen a lot of things like that happen you know mm. they, they, they just cut interviews uh or promos short you know but uh, you know sometimes you heard instances where whole matches that were advertised were were cut from uh pay-per-views because they had gone on way too long with uh other matches and interview segments well let's talk about your dad now because obviously the the patriarch of the of the famous Hart family and and the godfather of Stampede Wrestling, and he had uh, when it came to the whole WWF expansion, he had a unique kind of situation. And and actually, I was just reading about it again now because with Vince McMahon's retirement, there have been a lot of stories about you know uh, his life and the way that he expanded his company and everything. And I and and I I noticed how the the situation with Stampede was. And correct me if I'm wrong here, that they basically bought your dad out and in, in order to have the TV rights to. to right. But then they kind of reneged on the deal where they didn't pay everything they said they were going to pay. And then they wound up allowing your dad to start Stampede Wrestling up again, even though he didn't have the television anymore. Is that is that how it happened? Um, kind of, you know, uh, they, they were supposed to be an acquisition, I think, of five hundred thousand dollars. Uh, when um, they bought my dad's promotion in 1984. This uh, was just when Vince was really uh, expanding his empire and uh, uh, running head-to-head against all the smaller promotions, you know, in the industry, you know, and uh, um, with with AWA and uh, WCW, and he was buying uh, TV times um, or slots in other cities. But uh, with the acquisition of Stampede, he uh, was... He was buying the rights to the promotion. Uh, most of my dad's rings that he had, you know, which he was able to set up for shows uh, all over, you know, Calgary, Edmonton, Vancouver, even in places like Montana and Regina and Saskatoon. And uh, most importantly, uh, the TV rights, you know. To, so for all the uh, places where Stampede was uh, seen on television uh, in Western Canada, all these major cities like Vancouver, Calgary, Edmonton, Regina, Saskatoon, Winnipeg. Vince was getting uh, that slot for for Maple Leaf Wrestling, which was filming out of Toronto, and um, it was supposed to be a a payoff of uh, five hundred thousand dollars, and uh, none of that was ever paid. Right. Um, you know, it was supposed to be done over a period of time. It was a, a legal agreement, but um, um, and 
the process he he was supposed to use uh select talent from our promotion so he was going to use brett jim neidhart and uh and sign the bulldogs and the bulldogs didn't initially sign they weren't very happy with their treatment when they first went there and they weren't happy with how they were being used so it looked like it was only going to be uh brett and jim and they didn't even uh form a team until some time later you know but um um the idea was they would they would uh use some of the better established talent on stampede and um you know they they had made a lot of uh, promises that they were going to, going to elevate brett you know on the on the canadian level you know across canada but they didn't initially you know he was kind of lost in the shuffle and uh uh they they kind of gave up on him you know and then it wasn't until they they eventually did sign the bulldogs they brought them in and, and then decided to uh turn Brad Hill and partner him with Nightheart to work against them. But anyway, but that was the, the arrangement, you know, that they would showcase some of uh, Stu's top talent and, um, and uh, you know, and you got the TV rights, but, uh, but not, nothing was ever paid, you know, and, uh, um, and then when they, they first ran live shows, I think it was in the, the fall of 84 and the winter of 85, their shows didn't get over. You know, their their TV show hadn't been uh, very well received. It was kind of the, the squash job format, you know, uh, right. the uh, the short TV style matches, uh, you know, with the with the jobbers or preliminaries and uh, the very one-sided matches. And Stampede TV show had always been different. They always showed, uh, you know, pretty intense competitive uh, matches and angles, and, you know, from the Friday night shows in Calgary. And uh, fans didn't catch on with the the WWF format, you know, the, the shows from Brampton, Ontario, and uh, their first uh, seven or eight months, uh, their crowds weren't very good, and and the fans uh, didn't didn't support them. You know, I, I think that changed when they finally got Hulk Hogan established and the Hulkamania uh, run um, started, especially after WrestleMania one, and when they when they launched the Bulldogs against the Hart Foundation, you know, then the fans got into that. But but up until then, um, you know, they, they had really faltered all over Western Canada. You know, they, they weren't drawing. Um, they, they didn't have much of a following. People didn't have any interest in the show. You know, they, they weren't using uh, any local Canadian talent much. Um, and, and certainly none of the guys from Stampede. Uh, were given much of a push, you know, and I, I think that changed once they they launched the Bulldogs. But uh, up till then, they um, they they didn't catch on, you know, with with audiences in Western Canada, even with all their TV exposure, and uh, uh, and then uh, they just stopped running. They they discontinued running shows because they were losing so much money, and, um, and basically uh, Vince encouraged my dad, you know, to restart the promotion and maybe some local interest in wrestling again and my dad decided uh to relaunch stampede in the i think it was in the fall of 1985 so it was about a um a year after you know the wwe had uh, had taken over from stampede and um and uh in that whole process you know could my dad had restarted the promotion and relaunched stampede maybe uh Vince didn't feel obligated to honor mm. his original agreement about paying $500,000. Plus, he was supposed to pay like uh, 3% of all the live dates right. in shows they ran, you know, in Calgary, Edmonton, all, all these places, uh, basically all the cities where my dad was running. And uh, um, he never uh, lived up to any of his uh, um, agreements or conditions there, you know. It, I think uh, because 
Brad and Jim now, we're, we're getting a good push, and the Bulldogs uh, had become tag team champions when they won the title at WrestleMania in uh, 1986. And because uh, some of the Stampede stars were getting a, uh, a good push, uh, my dad didn't really force the issue, you know, but, uh, um, you know, he, he never was compensated for, for what he gave up in the process. And uh, uh, that's just unfortunate, you know, it was, uh, it was uh, uh, an unfair deal from the start, you know, and even though uh, it helped elevate Bretts and Jim's and uh, Dynamite's and Davies' uh, career, um, you know, the, the original agreement here was never lived up to by Vince of the WWF. Yeah, um, you know, you hear a lot of stories like that from that time period of of uh, some of the regional promoters getting maybe taken advantage of and kind of getting a raw deal. You know, uh, uh, somebody like Paul Bosch comes to mind, or or Larry Matisic in St. Louis and things like that. It seems to be that there was a lot of that happening, and and the way you describe it, where you know, if Vince is kind of encouraging your dad and saying, "Well, why don't you start back up again?" It, it, you know, far be it from me to cast aspersions on Vince McMahon, yeah. but it almost sounds like he's doing that as a way to try to get out of having to pay him. Yeah, I think he did, you know. So, because um, my dad restarted the promotion, uh, relaunched Stampede, you know, and he was able to get a lot of his TV spots back uh, just because uh, I think the uh, uh, program directors from different uh, stations weren't happy with it, with the Maple Leaf uh, wrestling approach and uh you know and and obviously that was reflected in the ratings you know uh they welcomed when my dad uh said i'm going to restart stampede and uh you know relaunch the promotion and um you know and it was and that was tough for my dad because now he had lost a lot of his core talent he didn't have uh brett he didn't have uh the bulldogs he didn't have uh, dr d david schultz uh a lot of others had, you know, gone on to WCW or working mostly in Japan, and he had to kind of start from scratch. And um, he didn't have uh, uh, a nucleus of really top talent, you know. And when he started in in '85, and it was slow going, you know, it was it was really tough. And then now, uh, you know, he lost his best stars like uh, uh, Brett and Jim and the Bulldogs. And by this time, now they they had become established. But I but I really think. Uh, the launch of uh, the Hart Foundation, the Bulldogs, uh, you know, elevated WWF in Canada, you know, because these were all known proven stars in Canada, and uh, it really helped uh, uh, boost their crowds and uh, attendances, you know, and, 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 and obviously Hulk Hogan deserved some credit. By this time, he was finally catching on, and, uh, you know, he had, he had so much uh, exposure, so much charisma, and, uh, you know, he... Uh, he was becoming a, a bigger ground card, um, so so that was uh, was a hard thing for my dad. But but I think Vince used that to his advantage, you know, because when he, he restarted the promotion, he built up some local interest in wrestling again. Where whereas the WWF had faltered when they when they ran months earlier, and uh, now he he was able to uh, you know launch uh, Brett and Jim and the Bulldogs, you know, into a pretty major ground powers because they they were having phenomenal matches everywhere you know and they had some matches on tv but they were they were probably the biggest draws on the promotion next to uh hulk hogan you know and uh um it it, it certainly helped uh uh wwf in canada you know but but uh, so i think vince uh used those things to his advantage to uh renege on his uh financial obligations uh, to pay my dad 
uh, for his acquisition of the territory and uh, and um, capitalize on and exploit uh, those names from from Calgary and uh, and use that for uh, appeal not only in Canada but uh, all over the U.S. and international because uh, I don't think the tag team division was ever any stronger than it was when. Uh, you know, they launched the Bulldogs and the Hard Foundation, and then they had some other great teams too, you know, with uh, the Killer Bees, with uh, uh, the Sheik and Volkoff, later Demolition, and some of them, you know, and uh, it was a testament to um, those two teams, which had consistently good matches with them everywhere. But as you said, Brian, I think that seemed to be the this, this story in a number of smaller promotions that Vince had bought out or taken over where he had promised uh, – uh, to buy out these promoters and pay them uh, percentages of live shows, and I don't think that ever happened. You know, and uh, he just becomes so established and so powerful that these smaller promoters really uh, couldn't legally uh, contest that. You know, I don't, I don't know what the uh, uh, the strength of the written contracts were, but um, uh, it just it wasn't something that was really uh, legally challenged. You know, even though um, you know they they. They certainly didn't uh, live up to their obligations and uh, what these written deals were. I think for, for a lot of these promoters, they uh, um, they felt they would be rewarded in some way. You know, they would get some uh, exposure or uh, uh, credibility. But uh, it seemed uh, after too long, they were they're just kind of uh, forgotten and moved aside and uh, replaced. You know, by by the WWF. Uh, machine you know and then the smaller promotions were, were just an afterthought and how long had your dad been promoting wrestling in in canada when did he start he first started i think in 1948 so you know he'd run for about 50 years you know and he, he finally shut his doors down and closed promotion at the end of 1989 but by that time it was, was really tough we uh we couldn't compete with the wwf you know they had so much more exposure and uh major talent and uh um a lot of our better stars had moved on even on you know who was uh, the heart and soul of the stampede promotion uh from about 86 to 89 um you know he we couldn't hold him back anymore and he had the opportunity to work for wwf to bottom him in as the blue blazer but you know and he was uh he was he had so many overseas commitments he was doing tours of uh japan and uh eventually uk and germany and mexico so we couldn't hold on back you know but but he but he couldn't be replaced either you know once we'd lost on and even some others uh, like brian Pillman and uh chris benoit you know some of our our best commodities um you know we we couldn't hold them back they had the opportunity to make some good money and really get some some prime exposure if they went to wcw or or just work uh uh, exclusively, say for New Japan or All Japan, and um, it, it was uh, it was just too tough uh, to 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 carry on the promotion after that. So you know, my dad finally um, retired for good at the at the end of um, 1989. But uh, you know, he had a, a a great run. You know, for pretty much 50 years. You know, uh, running uh, all over Western Canada and uh, weekly shows uh, in in Calgary and. Uh, you know, and, and I think more importantly, I think he gave a lot of guys the opportunity to work and, and become decent workers and uh, work pretty much anywhere they wanted to go. You know, I think if you were established and, uh, and worked in Calgary, you could go to any territory and do well. Yeah, and I was going to say, you know, uh, that, that, that 40, 50 years, one of the legacies feels like to me, 
among that for that promotion even more than a lot of others is just the sheer amount of stars that it produced it, it just seemed to be a constant flow of of and i don't just mean i mean people who hadn't been stars before but who were made into stars or who were at least made into marketable talents coming out of stampede wrestling yeah absolutely and you know guys from different uh parts of the world you know we had uh yeah probably the biggest influx of uh european wrestlers we had so many that came from the uk uh who became big stars with stampede and then went on to uh do really well elsewhere like i look at billy robinson the first place he ever wrestled in north america was was uh, for stampede worked there in 1969 and had a classic one-hour draw during our stampede with uh, dory funk jr world title match before uh 7,000 fans in the Stampede Corral, and uh, that really launched Billy's North American exposure. Um, and uh, within a year, he was acquired by AWA. Events, or, I mean, Bern Gagne hired him, you know, because he uh, had gotten uh, great exposure, you know, for, for Stampede. And then we brought in a whole bunch of different uh, British guys, uh, Jeff Ports, uh, Les Thornton, uh, uh, Black Angus, or Kendall Nagasaki, uh, and then... Uh, uh, after a few years layoff, and we, we brought in uh, Dynamite Kid, you know, and he, he was just a phenomenal star. I mean, Dynamite was a, a one-of-a-kind, unique athlete. There's there nobody that could do what Dynamite Kid did in the ring. He was just just incredible. Um, you know, even even as a, a smaller guy in the cruiserweight division, he he was just uh, so athletic, so acrobatic, um, just just amazing. You know, and then that led to a new wave of uh, British stars that came, but there were a lot of uh, Japanese guys that came in, um, you know, uh, that did uh, incredibly well, you know, guys like Takobra and uh, uh, Kichi Yamato became Jushin Liger and Hiro Hase, you know, and these became major stars uh, when they returned to Japan. So it just seemed Stampede was the place where to, where to uh, either break in or, or uh, acquire experience and, and learn from other really good guys and, um, you know, work five, six nights a week. Sometimes we're working seven nights a weekend because we, wow. we ran shows almost every night. And uh, you just had to get better, you know. Uh, you you would learn and take so much from different guys you worked with. But, you know, and we had a, a great core of, um, ex, you know, of established, experienced guys, guys like Neil Burke, um, uh, you know, who's um, just, just a, a great veteran and uh, been around for so many years and... Uh, you know, Archie Stomper Goldie, you know, he, he was uh, a legendary uh, heel on the Stampede promotion, but, uh, you know, those were always uh, major established stars, you know, who were big wrong cards, and uh, guys got better and better working against, uh, you know, uh, performers like them. So, uh, you know, Stampede was uh, a great place, like I said, where to, to either break in or uh, learn from the... Uh, the best workers in the business and you, and you could go anywhere after that and uh and 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 be a, a credible performer and was your dad um were your parents already together by the time your dad started promoting or did or did did he meet her before that or after he started uh, my dad met my mom uh, when he was wrestling uh in new york I think he was working for vince mcmahon Senior, maybe actually, I think it was Toots Mott actually, you know, before Vince uh, Senior had taken over. But right. this is maybe around 1946, kind of uh, a year after the Second World War. 
Right. Oh, so that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And you met my mom when he was uh, there in New York. I think you uh, met her on a beach when it was with uh, Lord Blears and Sandra Kovacs. And uh, I think Paul Bosch, you know, and these were different guys that were were wrestling, I think, for, for Toots Mont, but that's how he met my mom. And then, uh, you know, my dad uh, worked on a few other circuits. I think he had worked in um, in Texas, and he worked maybe in the Minneapolis area and a few smaller promotions, and then uh, came back to, uh, actually lived in Montana for a while, I think in Great Falls. So uh, my oldest brother, Smith, was born in New York after my my dad had married my mom, and then uh, they, they stayed in Great Falls, Montana, for a couple of years and Bruce and Keith were born there. And then, uh, 1948, he, he returned and, um, started the promotion in Calgary and then eventually, uh, bought out the promotion in Edmonton. And so by that time they were already married and had, uh, about three or four kids, you know, and then they went on to have a total of 12 kids. So that was an interesting story because they, they ended up having six boys in a row, uh, from Smith to Dean. And, uh, Obviously, uh, they they wanted to have a daughter. Uh, they kept trying and trying, you know. And they had six six sons in a row. And then finally, uh, the seventh was my sister Ellie. And then they thought, well, we've got five boys and one daughter. She's going to be outnumbered, you know. She's going to be uh, the youngest in the family with no uh, no sisters. So they they didn't want to stop at uh, at uh, five. So then they they had another. And they had Georgia, you know. Now they had five boys and. Uh, two girls and then they thought well seven's kind of an odd number uh, <laughs> to stop having kids you know and then they just kept going then after that they had a total of 12 but then it was boy girl boy girl boy girl you know until uh, they finally stopped with Owen at number 12 but it was uh, an interesting phenomenon though that uh, you know my parents went on to have 12 kids and then raised them in uh, the hard house you know where we're all our um, business activities and the rest of the promotion and uh, Stu's training center and the basement was located, you know, so we, we were exposed to a lot of different uh, influences uh, growing up in that house and uh, seeing so many um, wrestlers, you know, that came up to, to visit my dad, some who worked out with Stu in the dungeon and uh, um, just, just a, a lot of interesting things. You know, we had uh, um, a wrestling bear that was in our basement. I think we had Gene Dubois at, bought a wrestling bear and they had no place to keep the bear, um, you know, after shows, they kept him, uh, in my dad's basement. And, uh, uh, my older brothers and sisters talked about the, the bear licking, uh, ice cream that they had on their toes, you know, from, uh, um, from the, uh, level above, you know, they just sort of hang their, their feet and the bear would lick, uh, the ice cream they had on their toes. Oh and that could have ended the disaster. I know. But, you know, but a lot of uh, those things, you know, just, uh, you know, different, different people who came up to the house, uh, you know, guys like Rocky Marciano and uh, Jersey Joe Walcott, you know, came in and uh, uh, guest refereed, you know, and they'd come up and visit my dad. And uh, sometimes uh, they would have uh, them over for dinner. But, you know, we were introduced to so many um, different celebrities and big name wrestlers and, uh, you know, and, and just growing up in a large family, you uh, on an acreage far away from the rest of the city was a, a, a pretty um, unique experience that uh, few, few could ever say they had. And your mom was originally from Brooklyn, was it, or Long Island? Yeah, or? yeah New York. Yes, yeah. so she she grew up in Long Island. Long Island. And, uh, yeah, and uh, grew up there with her sisters and uh, raised there. Um, you know, until uh, she met my dad, and she was uh, uh, working as. Uh, a paralegal secretary, um, I, I think for a law firm, 
you know, and then my mom was, was just incredible. She, uh, uh, she was a qualified English teacher. She could have been an English teacher, but, uh, she was so grammatically sound, you know, and her speaking and writing skills and she knew shorthand and she could type over a hundred words a minute. Uh, just, just an incredible, uh, secretarial and accounting skills and she worked with my dad in the office and so she she handled the payroll she answered the phones you know she she spoke with wrestlers uh, you know wanted to get booked with my dad or uh we're calling him to uh you know to discuss bookings with my dad you know she she uh, was the first person people dealt with very big few actually saw her in person because she was very reserved and quiet she she stayed upstairs in the office almost all the time. But when uh, when people phoned or you know uh, wrote letters to communicate with my dad, she was the go-to person, you know, and uh, just did an incredible job, you know. And then uh, raising uh, twelve kids and dealing with all the uh, dogs and cats that we had and different visitors and guests there, it was uh, um, it was never dull, you know. It was like Grand Central Station, you know, people coming and going all the time and. Uh, um, you know, it was, it was amazing that my parents were able to kind of balance that with, uh, you know, raising 12 kids and running, uh, the family business all the time. And, uh, Stu would occasionally, uh, when you could get pre go down and, uh, work out in the dungeon and, uh, uh, you know, uh, train guys and, you know, and that, that's where he, he always felt best, most, most comfortable when, uh, he could, uh, strain, you know, train and stretch guys in the dungeon and, uh, you know, and that was, uh, that was, that was my dad's, uh, uh, recreational time, which he didn't get often enough, you know, but, but, uh, um, you know, when the day was finished and all the transactions from, uh, uh, running the promotion and, uh, you know, uh, uh, setting up the, the live shows and getting the wrestlers off to the towns and dealing with all that, um, you know, when, when Stu could, uh, work out or train in, in the dungeon, um, you know, that's, that's uh, where he was really in his element and uh, right. could practice his craft. You know, and, and I have to ask you, and this reminds me of that, you know, just from those those early years, because before I run out of time, I wanted to make sure I fit this in somewhere. But when I was researching just before we, we spoke and I wanted to learn uh, as much as I could about you, I discovered a something that I never knew. And I don't know if a lot of people know this at all, but that uh, your godfather was Jack Pfeffer. Is that true? I, I guess it is, you know, and I, I didn't believe it when I first heard it. In fact, when Tom Burke uh, told me, I said, no, I think it's a mistake. And uh, so I, I don't even remember meeting Jack Pfeffer. I don't think I ever did, but I think my dad, yeah, honorary godfather. But uh, but there there was something in writing to that effect, you know, that I saw it. So, so I think my dad, um, I don't know if he worked for Jack when he was in the New York area, because from what I understood, he was always... Uh, an outlaw promoter who ran uh, an opposition to Toots Mott, but maybe at uh, some time they they worked together. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I don't know the history behind that, but obviously my dad had some um, relationship or contact with Jack Pfeffer, and uh, um, you know, I'm not sure why I was uh, I was chosen to <laughs> why he was chosen to be my honorary godfather, but I consider that a compliment, you know. And uh, he, uh, you know, he was a he was a legendary. Uh, promoter he was a he was a great character and uh you know he certainly had a lot to do with the evolution of uh of wrestling in the new york area so but uh you know that was some interesting trivia i didn't find out until many many years later and were you were you able to ask anyone in the family about it no uh 
um, you know, because my mom and dad had both passed at right. that time, so I wasn't able to uh, verify that. But uh, but again, I've uh, I've seen it in in writing, and I've uh, seen it on websites. So I I I'm not going to question it or uh, <laughs> uh, deny it now. You know, but, that's uh, wild. Yeah. But yeah, it's a, it's kind of interesting trivia. You, you never know who you're. Uh, link to you know from your past i know and and you know when i came across that that the first thing i thought of was new york because he had been like you said he was you know i mean he went all over the place he was pretty itinerant but he spent a lot of time in new york and he was usually uh, a pain in the ass for people like toots mont and also uh rudy dusick was another promoter in new york at that time that he was running against and 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 that's what i thought of that it must have been a connection from new york that maybe Maybe your dad had worked for him. Yeah, maybe my dad worked with him, or they they met somewhere. You know, uh, I'm not sure what the connection was. I really wish I could have asked my dad about that, but uh, um, but uh, you know, it's uh, it's a compliment. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, uh, yeah. You know, I I can think of worse guys to be named after. You know, have uh, as as a, as a godfather. So yeah. Well, very very important person too. I mean, from wrestling history. Um, And even, you know, whether it was New York or not, you know, and I I was also thinking how uh, looking at some of your dad's history when he did pass through the New York area. I remember even speaking to my my family's from Brooklyn in New York originally. And I remember uh, speaking to my grandfather. uh, We we used to have an arena in New York called the MacArthur Stadium in Brooklyn, New York. And my grandfather said that he remembered seeing your father on some of those shows in Brooklyn, and this would have been the 40s. So yeah. it, it lines up. It, 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 it's probably uh, correct. Yeah, oh, I think it is. You know, my dad was definitely uh, there, you know, at that time. You know, and I, I know he worked primarily for uh, Toots Mont and maybe Rudy Dusick, but... Um, you know, and, and and my dad uh, was well connected. You know, with 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 Paul Bosch there, who I believe, and I think uh, Jan Piers, they actually introduced my dad to my mom. You know, when they were on a beach uh, in Long Island, I'm not sure it was Coney Island or but somewhere on Long Island, and my mom was there with uh, my aunts, uh, her sisters. You know, and uh, my dad, uh, she caught my dad's attention. I think they were just there. Uh, surfing and uh swimming at the beach and uh my dad uh saw her you know and he was just uh starstruck and you know he, he, he was just in love with her the first uh, time he saw her and uh um they got introduced but i think paul bosch was, was really instrumental uh you know in introducing my dad to her and uh, she had no background with wrestling at all you know had come from a family only with uh girls you know she was the oldest of uh you know four uh, sisters but uh uh i, I don't think my my grandmother was very happy about it. You know, she <laughs> she wanted my mom to stay in New York and maybe uh, marry uh, someone in real estate or law or something, you know. And uh, she didn't uh, uh, endorse my dad. You know, she mm-hmm. she didn't approve. Uh, you know, plus my dad uh, not only married my mom, but he took her away from New York all the way to uh, uh, Barron, Canada. You know, where we had these uh, wasteland, cold winters. You know, and uh, you know my my. Uh, my dad took her away from that but um you know with with reference to uh jack pepper i think paul bosch had maybe worked with with jack too and so maybe that was a connection my dad had with uh jack because uh because he was with uh with paul a lot they were close friends and and uh jan Vleers and, and uh sandra kovacs uh, you know who 
ran the all-star promotion in Vancouver for a number of years, but they, they had all been working, I think, for uh, Tootsmont at that time. So, so um, obviously, uh, uh, I think through those uh, connections, my dad either worked for uh, Jack or he was introduced to uh, Jack by Paul Bosch. Right, and, and Paul Bosch uh, was also from the New York area originally, and he, That's right. in fact, I think that he was also working as a lifeguard, but was he not? I, I think it was, yeah. the, it would have been either, I, I always mix it up, it, I should know because I'm from the area, but it was either Brighton Beach or Rockaway Beach, somebody will correct me when they hear this, but that, yeah. that Bosch had been a lifeguard in addition to also being a wrestler. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, uh, Brian, I know you you, you wanted to ask me a little about the Sheik and uh, his uh, exposure in Calgary, but um, uh, he did appear uh, just twice in, in uh, the Stampede promotion in 1975. But uh, uh, at the time, we, we had Mark Lewin and King Curtis as our top stars, and they were working a big rivalry with each other. And uh, um, Mark, Mark knew... Sheik, well, he worked uh, so much for, for Sheik in Detroit, and uh, uh, I think they were pretty good friends. And uh, um, Mark uh, had recommended to my dad, well, I can bring in the Sheik. And Sheik was, uh, you know, he was a major star, a major drawing card, even places he had never been before because he had so much magazine exposure, you know, and maybe TV exposure in a lot of territories where uh, uh, the Detroit tv tapings went or where, where the sheik appeared but uh um you know he was an established star in calgary even though he had never ever been here before but um but anyway uh as part of an angle they uh they had uh she come in and uh work with mark lewin i guess it was uh, in maybe june of 1975 and uh you know it was a typical sheik match you know he uh he used a pencil and uh um, you know, carved Mark Lewin up, and then he used fire later on the show on uh, Big John Quinn in a match. So, you know, the sheet got over uh, pretty well. You know, he worked his patented style and then, uh, you know, fireballed another wrestler. But, uh, and then um, he was booked to come in. And Eddie Creechman, I think, came in as manager. You know, and Eddie was a pretty loud, outspoken manager, you yes. know, good talker. But, uh, um, you know, and then, uh, Unfortunately, he never came in again, but uh, the, the story behind that is he, uh, uh, we booked him to come back in about a month later. This would have been, I think, uh, in August of that summer of 75, and uh, um, you know, he was supposed to work uh, uh, with Lewin again. I think in a tag match with Tim Curtis against Lewin and uh, John Quinn or something. But, and we had our TV show on um, in Toronto. So uh, some of our anchors were getting over really well on uh, in the Toronto market, and uh, so it was kind of an exchange of talent where they brought in uh, Lewin and King Curtis and Quinn to work on uh, their shows there, and then we were bringing in the Sheik as a major star here. And uh, but uh, there had been an incident, I think, at a Toronto show or a spot show outside of Toronto where a fan got into the dressing room and tried to attack uh, the Sheik, and the Sheik had his blade and carved this fan up, and. Uh, uh knifed him pretty good you know and he obviously was protecting himself and uh, uh as a result uh there was going to be criminal charges laid by uh the police i guess against uh, the sheik and uh he'd gone back to uh detroit and uh, he didn't feel safe flying 
across the border back to Canada to do uh, shows for us. So he's supposed to do two show, two more shows in Calgary and Edmonton. And, uh, you know, I think my dad found out that the day uh, of the shows, you know, that he had to cancel out, you know, he was, he was afraid he would be arrested and maybe ex- expedited to uh, Ontario, you know, to face uh, assault with the deadly weapon charges. But uh, so, so unfortunately, uh, he never... Uh, made it back and then uh you know Lewin and Curtis kind of finished their run in Calgary because they've been there for about eight months and uh went to different promotions I think actually Mark went and worked for the Sheik for quite a while but uh, that was the one and only time uh, the Sheik worked uh, for us but you know certainly got over very well and had a you know a strong impact on uh, the promotion yeah and you know for those listening and those wondering you know we had been we were talking about this even before we started recording and i had said i'm glad you brought it up before we wrapped up because i had said that i was uh amazed and i i wished that i had spoken to you a year or two ago when i was writing the book because for for people that have read the book in the book i mentioned that chic only did those two shows in the stampede territory that he worked with Lewin and then, and he was not, ne- you know, he'd never been there before or since. And I didn't really have an explanation as to why, like I yeah. told you, I thought it was just because he didn't want to travel that far. Cause it was a, it was a far trip for him. A lot, certainly a lot further than Detroit. I, I mean, than Toronto, but, but this makes a lot of sense. And this would explain yeah. it, especially if it was something. And believe me, the Sheik was known to slice up fans. If they tried anything with him, that was yeah, not unprecedented. But if yeah. this if this had happened in Toronto, then of course it would make sense that he wouldn't want to come back into Canada. He'd be afraid they would have seized him. Yeah, exactly. I, I think he eventually um, got the charges dropped. I know subsequently, you know, uh, a while later, he was working on shows again for for Frank Tunney, you know, in Toronto and other places in Ontario, you know, uh, but they, they eventually got the charges dropped. I mean, the fan did come into the dressing room and conceivably was trying to uh, attack the Sheik, you know, or that was their defense. And uh, I think he got the charges dropped. But at the, at the time, you know, uh, it was very unsafe for him to come back in uh, into the country and he would have uh, probably been arrested, you know, as soon as he uh, entered Canada. There's basically a national warrant out for his arrest you know but uh so you know that unfortunately is why uh he could never return to stampede but you know it was great that uh we can say the sheik worked in calgary even uh one time you know um you know because he he was uh a unique incredible performer you know and one of the biggest names in the industry uh whether you approved of his uh style or methods of mayhem or not you know he, he was a very important figure in the industry and a huge draw everywhere he went Without a doubt. And and thank you so much for clarifying that. Really, it, it it answered a question that had been on my mind for a while. Thanks for clarifying yeah. that. And, yeah, and I'm looking forward to reading your uh, your book on the sheet, you know, because he, he had an amazing career, you know, not only uh, as a big star, but, you know, for, for running one of the biggest uh, empires of promotions, you know, in the U.S., you know, that whole uh, Detroit uh, territory, you know, that covered uh, Michigan and uh, Ohio and uh, parts of Canada as well, and uh, I, I think uh, even uh, uh, Virginia and uh, other places, you know, it's just an incredible empire, that whole uh, network, you know, that he had, you know, and, uh, you know, uh, a lot of the stars that he he helped get over and uh, introduced to the business as well. So, uh, you know, I definitely look forward to reading your book on him. Oh, thank you. I, I appreciate that so much. And, you know, before we go, it just occurred to me that since your dad, I mean, your dad being, uh, it was a member of the NWA for, for most of his time, was he not? 
Yeah, he was. So, um, you know, from the late 40s right up to, uh, you know, the, the early 1980s. Yeah, he, you know, he, he uh, was a member of the NWA and, you know, we, we frequently brought in the world champions, you know, for our big shows during the Stampede in July in well, Calgary. So, yeah. Yeah, because the reason I mention it is even though he had only used the Sheik a couple of times, I'm imagining that they had to have crossed paths at if your dad had attended the conventions and things like that because they were yeah. both they were both promoters, so he had to have known him. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think my dad was on a first name basis with, with Eddie Farhat as, as well as all the other promoters. You know, and, and during those uh, NWA conventions, everybody attended, even non NWA promoters would would come. You know, quite often you'd maybe see Vern uh, right. Gagne or Vince McMahon Senior who weren't supposedly members of uh, the NWA. Well, years later, they they uh, had memberships, but they still had their own uh, champions. You know, they had, uh, you know, they recognized different uh, regional champions. But, um, you know, at those conventions, uh, you know, you saw promoters from, from all over the world, you know, uh, from Japan, from Australia, New Zealand, uh, Mexico, you know, uh, uh, even Europe, you know, so it was, uh, it was quite a, a get together, you know, for a lot of different promoters and wrestlers. And it was, uh, it was great. They networked, uh, they exchanged, uh, talent and, uh, uh, you know, talked about everything that's going on in the industry. So. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, as if you can't tell, I could talk about this stuff forever and, and I could talk about the chic forever and I'm sure you could too, but like, but I don't want to take up your entire day. So I, I, I want to thank you so much for, I know you're a guest of Tom Burke this week and and Tom again I want to thank cuz he made this whole conversation possible. So I want to thank you and and Tom really for taking time out of your day to do this. I appreciate it so much. Yeah, it's a pleasure Brian. Uh, it's uh, uh, it's fun, you know, it's 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 nice to relive a lot of memories and uh, talk about the glory days of the past and uh, that's what Tom Burke and I have in common we have such a, a love and appreciation for uh, the history of, of the business and uh, um, all the, the the changes that we saw and uh, how much of an impact it's had on uh, uh, the industry today. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, Tom also wanted me to mention to you about Corey's Breakfast. Oh, yeah. 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 We, oh, sorry. Uh, we just, uh, we just had a breakfast with uh Flying Fred Curry and his son Nick. Sorry, I misread that. So, but uh, it was it was really nice. First time I had met Fred Curry, but uh, uh, you know, I followed his career a lot when he was um, working in Detroit for the Sheik, and uh, we'd get all the uh, programs sent to us. So the, the somebody in the office was sending uh, the programs to us. And, you know, they had those magazine format programs. They were about like, fifteen pages, black and white, but they were uh, glossy magazines. And uh, you know, so we would get. Uh, uh, the programs, and they would also usually list the attendance figures, you know, um, which which was great. But uh, it was nice uh, meeting with Fred because, uh, you know, he, he was a big star in the, the 60s and 70s. And, you know, my dad knew uh, Bull Curry quite well. And my dad was breaking in. He had uh, uh, some classic brawls with Bull. So, you know, Bull was uh, uh, a hardcore wrestler. You know, yes. He was one of the... Uh, uh, the toughest and most extreme hardcore guys in business and never changed his style. You know, I don't think he was ever uh, mild or light in the ring with anybody, you know, and uh, uh, then that's that's why I guess he, he got over, you know, but my, my dad had uh, some interesting matches with him, but, uh, you know, and, and uh, Fred was a very 
successful second generation star and now his son Nick is uh um I think making some headways on some of the local promotions here in Massachusetts and uh Connecticut. So uh, you know he, he looks like a really good prospect and uh, I think Nick could have a promising career. Well you tell Tom that he should have invited me to this breakfast because I've been <laughs> Tom, what were you thinking? We'll get you there next time, but you might have to uh, pick up the tab, Brian. So. I don't mind it. I, I've been trying to meet. I've been trying to connect with Fred and Nick for a long time now because I, I interviewed Fred for the book, and he was probably the best interview I did because he was, he's one of the only people left that was really a, a, a peer of the Sheik in those years. And, yeah. yeah, you know, and they live a little bit north of me here in Connecticut, and I've been trying to make that happen. So yeah. next time you do that, Tom, you got to have me there. Yeah. Fred was really interesting to talk to, um, had some great memories. I was, uh, I, uh, I couldn't believe how many different territories he'd worked in, you know, and what a career he had, but, you know, he had, you know, followed the footsteps of, uh, his dad bull, which was not easy, you know, um, cause Fred was more of a, a high flyer and a technical wrestler, you know, in contrast to bull, but, uh, he never hid that, that he was a uh, bull's son, you know, he never, uh, used a different persona or name, but, uh, I was amazed at just how many different promotions he'd worked for, you know, uh, he'd worked in the Maritimes in Canada, he'd worked, uh, in Texas, you know, he worked in San Francisco, even worked in Australia and, uh, Hawaii, you know, all these different places, Japan as well. So, uh, you know, had a very uh, successful career in its own right. So, but it was a uh, was great meeting up with with Fred and Nick. So, uh, we'll definitely include you the next time we get together with Brian. That would be great. I look I look forward to meeting both of you. Okay, all the best to you, Brian. It was it was a pleasure speaking with you today. Thanks. You too. Likewise. Okay. All the best to you. There you have it, folks, my great conversation with Ross Hart. I hope you enjoyed digging into that treasure trove of wrestling history. I learned so much there, and I hope you did too. Great talking to Ross. And once again, thanks to Tom Burke for making that interview possible. That was really, really great. And I want to announce that for next week's episode of Shut Up and Wrestle, we are going back to the WWE corporate well because we will have the man who was the the lead photo editor and photographer for WWF uh, from the mid-80s up to the early 2000s and uh, who I worked with briefly in the beginning of my tenure in publications at WWE, I'm talking about Tom Buchanan, a familiar name from the WWF magazine masthead for those of you who collected it over the years. He'll be my guest next week. I've also got more great guests coming up in the weeks to come. I've talked about a few of them before. Uh, we've got Keith Caramello, who is another uh, Titan Tower corporate employee, the artist who designed a lot of great uh, championship belts and other things for WWE, and he's got some great stories. We've also got the promoter, Sheldon Goldberg, who's going to be coming up in the weeks to come. And as I mentioned at the top of the show, too, I am working on it as a veritable certainty that I'm going to be getting Seth Turner, the director of the International Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame, as a guest in the weeks to come on Shut Up and Wrestle. So keep on listening to the show. And of course, as we've said before, you can listen so many ways. There's S uawpod.com that's our website you can also go to spotify podcast addict 
uh, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, wherever you find podcasts, you will find Shut Up and Wrestle. Join the Facebook group as well. We've been building it now for a few months. We've got a nice, healthy following there. It is, of course, on Facebook. Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian R. Solomon. Join the group. Join the conversation. It's a lot of fun. If you want to pick up my book, Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original chic, you can purchase it on Amazon in either uh, print, digital, or audio format, read by yours truly. The magazines that I write for, Pro Wrestling Illustrated, you can get at pwi-online.com. And Inside the Ropes Magazine, you can get at insidetheropesmagazine.com. If you're looking for me on social media, I can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Brian R. Solomon. I have my writer webpage on Facebook at Brian Solomon Writer. And on any of those locations, you will find the link to my author web page for all the latest happenings in my world. Shut Up and Wrestle is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Network. And as always, this has been Brian R. Solomon asking you to keep those cards and letters coming in and reminding you that the best revenge is massive success. So long, wrestling fans. 